Hey guys, welcome to the Common Room Couch, where each week Essence and I ask each other a question, playing to the other person's strengths, and engage in some healthy debate and discussion. As always, we want to encourage you guys to join in on the conversation, so if we misspeak, misquote, or misunderstand something, please feel free to reach out and let us know, and we'll include that information in later segments so that everybody can stay in the loop. We had some technical difficulties, of which they were dogs. And now we're back. <laughs> so, Essence and I finished editing and recording everything a few months ago, and it's about a week and a half ago that we dropped the first four episodes. So thank you to everybody who's been listening in and sending us your sweet messages. It's so nice to hear. But we also spent a lot of time listening to ourselves. So instead of a weekly wrap, actually, we can do a weekly wrap. Like a lot has happened since, <laughs> since we filmed all of those back to back. But there were a lot of bumps in the road that you experience when you start a new project. You know, we re-recorded a lot of things. We re-edited, unedited, restarted a lot of things. So it was nice to finally have those ones up. But so I thought it would be fun, at least for part of it, to kind of talk about what we learned and what we're looking forward to now that we're doing this on a more weekly basis going forward. Do you want to go first? Uh, I can go first. <laughs> Girl's like, no. I feel like my major thing was probably that I have a really hard time articulating what I'm speaking, especially if it's something that I'm really excited about. Or just really want to explain well. No, no, no. I know what you're saying because there were multiple times when I was editing things that I realized we're on some different la- some different wavelength, some different wavelength or something. Because I'll listen back to what I just said and I'm like, that made no sense. Like that was not a grammatically correct structure. Like nothing about that was coherent. And I'll end it with, do you know what I mean? And you're like, yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> And you'll like answer it and explain like what I said and answer it. I'm like, thank God she knows what I'm saying because I listened to myself and I didn't know what I was saying. So thanks for that. But yeah, <laughs> I found out that I'm actually incoherent. <laughs> You're not incoherent. You're so extra. I'm extra? Girl. Okay. You're right. <laughs> We're both yeah, extra. I was like, You're right. Fine. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Try to explain that away. Yeah, I think one thing that really stuck out to me. I learned a lot about my speech patterns. And so, for example, filler words, which I definitely use less of now than I used to, because maybe like two years ago, I decided to make a conscious effort to say the word like a lot less. But listening back, and it's what you're saying, it's when we would get really excited about something and I'm not really trying to think about what I'm saying before I say it. And it's like, and like, and like, and like, and like, and like, and I'm listening to myself like, oh, girl, no. And that I need to be more confident in things I say. I think you're a lot better at that. I would kind of qualify things that I was saying. So, sure. It's like that um, professor in Legally Blonde. You know, <laughs> you're so right. About. You know, and she's like, would you bet his life on it? <laughs> she's like, No. I'm hopefully I don't need to bet someone's life on it. But how about what's just been going on a little bit? 
I feel like we can have a little bit longer of a weekly wrap because I thought they were going on forever. And then when we were editing, I was like, oh, hmm, that was a minute long. <laughs> we definitely could have talked about ourselves a little bit more than that. I feel like that's my cap for how much I can speak about myself. Um, <laughs> but let's see. Uh, so I started my senior year uh, since the last time we started recording. But uh, right now we're in election season. And basically, like, it's really hard to get people to vote, long story short, which is not really a surprise to anyone. But we were launching elections and there were like every single malfunction that you could think of happened. And people just like don't read instructions. So we had to like recreate the ballot, like Mm. restart the election. So it was super annoying. Normally, it's like a 20 minute project. And it ended up being like an all night thing, which was really frustrating but big eek we have an election i guess for me so i was actually (laughs) i don't know why all my friends from like areas outside williams with the podcast keep calling me girl boss like kind of ironically but they're like you you girl boss in your in your podcast empire but so technically i'm working four jobs right now because i'm working at mayo (laughs) i mean if you consider this a job which i think to some degree the podcast is a job but i'm working at one of my jobs full-time 40 hours a week and then i assistant manage at a store i like because the discount's crazy like 15 to 20 hours a week and then i've been selling clothes she business which like is i've like gotten it to be a real business now so that takes a lot of time and this podcast and today I was on TikTok because actually since we stopped filming, I downloaded TikTok. That was hilarious. Editing that episode and I was like, I'll never get TikTok. But there was uh, one <laughs> where someone was like, I cannot elaborate, but I think that I have girl bossed. I fear that I have girl bossed a bit too close to the sun. <laughs> I was like me. I was so exhausted. And I was like, I have girl bossed too close to the sun. One thing, because it's added a little bit more to our plate is we're launching our Patreon in October. We can plug that. Ooh, yes. <laughs> wow, I just love this conversation. <laughs> yes, girl, keep giving me nothing. <laughs> Rude. I was just giving excitement. <laughs> like the launch. <laughs> I keep talking. <laughs> I just listened to myself and my dad was like, you talk for 10 minutes straight. <laughs> Essence does not interrupt you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, <laughs> we're launching our Patreon. So you can subscribe, support the podcast, and get bonus content. So we're going to do, we have like a variety of mini episodes or full-length episodes, depending on what they end up being. And then depending on what level you subscribe to, you'll get a different amount of them, and there'll be different ones each month. So you're not going to get like the same one episode. But Essence is going to do, there could be like some Essence-centric episodes where she just talks about what she wants to talk about. You don't have to listen to my TV references. And then... I'll have episodes where I just talk about TV shows or random stuff. You know, we think it'd be fun to do a book club or like a watch a movie and dissect it or something. I think that would be fun or like, you know, something culturally applicable. But look out for that because I'm really excited to kind of get to do, get to like explore what we're doing a little bit more in different ways. But um, (laughs) yes, our topics for this week, dystopias and defund the police. We were talking when we came up with this episode title. Normally, I just sit there with a list of questions Essence has written for me and a list of questions I've written for her and try to think of some punny or like witty way to combine them. But this one we were talking and we were like, oh, that would be a really cool thing to combine. Yeah. Um, So I'm super excited for this episode. Um, And I think this combination is definitely one of my favorites. 
Um, but essentially, I'm not sure if you remember this, but one of the first conversations I actually remember us having in my freshman year was about one of your favorite classes. Um, at yeah. Oh, my God. I completely <laughs> forgot I took this class until right now. Yeah. Um, and it was about utopias and dystopia. So I feel like this is kind of like a full circle moment. And just a little bit about me. I feel like for pleasure, I read kind of two books, like <laughs> political theory and dystopian novels. And I think that it's something in the pop culture world that like we can agree on and have some connection. Mm-hmm. So like we need to do an episode yeah. on it. Okay, so basically, my questions for you are kind of, what are the history of dystopian novels? And I think that there's been tons of evolutions and revivals of these tales, and especially this kind of revival in teen books. I would like you to talk about that. What are the differences between those types of dystopian novels and the more classic dystopian novels? And what are some of your favorites? Okay, so I hope for this conversation, it can be a little bit of like me explaining things to kind of give us some context and I hope we can just kind of chat about our favorites because there's nothing I love more than talking about books, TV shows, movies, and especially (laughs) I think you and I definitely read different types of dystopian novels, I'm assuming. (laughs) Yeah. I was so into the young adult fiction side of Barnes and Noble from when I was six to 17 or however long until I had didn't have time to read anymore. But I would read so many novels and so much of them were included in this dystopian genre. So I think it'll be fun to kind of contrast like our favorite ones and ones that we've both read or watched. But so I guess just to set the stage, like what qualifies a dystopian, like what is the definition? So generally it's considered to be a work where things are dire for the average person. And this can include poverty, depression, an oppressive government, a police state, or mass conspiracies. So another part of this happens to be that generally the commentary a dystopian novel is making is what would happen if something in society went too far, whether that is, you know, surveillance like in 1984 or now i think we're seeing a hugely popular version of that with black mirror where they are focused on like technology and then this part of like why people like them in general i think is kind of subjective but some things that i found just like looking up why are dystopian novels so popular (laughs) in google is Some people said that it was people like to imagine themselves in this bleaker world because it's normally an everyday average person who's put in these situations in those books. And then it's easy for you to imagine yourself in that situation and reflect like what choices you would make. Would you survive? How would you adapt? And another site said it's an allegory for our times. So authors are writing about and reflecting what's in culture. So whether that society, technology, we're going to see a lot of them come after World War I, World War II, the Cold War, we see these resurgence in the genre. And then this applies to more recent books as opposed to older books, but also like the triumph of the human spirit. And definitely talk about this a little bit later, but we see books before kind of the 90s. They don't really have a happy ending. Like if you think about the end of Brave New World, and now if you think about Hunger Games, Divergent, The Maze Runner, there's a way that the teenagers or whoever it is that's the main character has like somehow brought this rogue scientist dictatorship whatever is going on they brought it down and there's like a new society so it does give this like glimmer of hope that like we can make a difference and do you think that that's primarily because the audience for older dystopian novels were older people like adults um and now like with teen dystopian novels like 
since they're purposely made for teens, do you think there's more of like a positive spin on the end? I don't know. That's a good question. I think one of the things that I read talked about how adults are the people who are writing the books, right? Teens are the ones who are reading them. But so it's the adult's interpretation of things that they're putting into it. So it would be more of like millennials or older that are writing the books for kids. So I guess it's whether or not I guess they're considering it if or if millennials themselves like want the glimmer of hope, if that mm. makes sense. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So to answer part of that question, I think we'll touch on it again in the future, but why these old novels like 1984, Animal Farm, and uh, Brave New World Oh, Handmaid's Tale is a really good example of like older novels that are now getting really popular. These are really talking about the dangers of technology or, or government surveillance. And while that's definitely relatable at the time it was written, it's probably even more so relatable now with the advances in technology that we've had. So I think we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the more modern section of the history. But anything else you want to touch on while we're here? I think... That one thing is kind of going back to that resurgence of older books, it almost seems like, and I think part of it's teens finding these books for themselves, but also it seems like a lot of it is that the English curriculum in the U.S., especially for AP literature or AP English, AP language, whatever, is mm -hmm. disproportionately filled with these types of books. So is this an unintentional choice by adults? Yeah, that's a really good point. Because Brave New World, I remember it was one of the books that I was the most excited to read. Mm. I think at both the schools I went to, you read it as a senior for whatever class you were in. I remember from the time that I was a freshman, I couldn't wait to read that book in English class. And it is still one of my favorite books, I think, that I read in English. And then I ended up reading it again in that Utopias and Dystopias philosophy class yeah, I think it's a book that's really interesting to read. Honestly, all of these are really interesting to read at different points of your life. Did you ever read The Hunger Games? No, I never read that book. I think The Hunger Games is a really interesting example because I was really into The Hunger Games when it first came out. What was it, like 2013, 2014, these movies started to get really big or something? Yeah. I was Team PETA, obviously. <laughs> Classic. Are you Team Gale? You made a face. I have no idea. Like, I'm, not, I'm not on a team. I'm just here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just vibing. <laughs> I remember not being... I guess it's easier to say, like, I rewatched the movies recently, and I was so freaked out rewatching it with the premise. Like, these are... Because at the time, you're the same age as them, so I don't think you realize how young the kids are. But the oldest you can be to enter the Hunger Games is 18. So now as, like, a 23-year-old watching, that's a 12-year-old child who's been sent in, who's going to be murdered by a 17-year-old who's been trained their whole life for this event. Yeah. And it's just now it was so much more disturbing, the entire premise of these like kids being sent for this Hunger Games thing. But when I was their same age and I felt so much older than I was, I don't remember that hitting as close to home as it did now. And I think that's really interesting about the novels, how like as your perspective changes. Mm -hmm. the society itself and yeah. what's going on in the books the contents of the book change as well because i also remember not being as freaked out the first time i watched handmaid's tale whenever it first came out i remember i watched a few episodes and i was just like hmm this kind of sucks <laughs> and then i rewatched it i think it was right after like season three came out i did a full rewatch from the beginning and i was mm, this is disturbing <laughs> this is really scary yeah but understatement should i go on to the history or is there anything else you want to talk about um i was just gonna say that i feel like the point about rereading dystopian novels is interesting because i feel like 
kind of the point of a dystopian novel is to raise consciousness in some way or in general being more aware of the systems that govern our lives. Um, And while like the dystopian novel is like the more extreme version of what's happening in real life, I think it's so like in your face that like you need to pay attention to your surrounding and what's going around you. Like that, that is the point of them. And I think that when we reread the dystopian I think that they often, I often think it reflects kind of the skepticism and like the anxieties that people are having at the time that they're written or kind of the resurgence of that anxiety later on in generations when you reread a dystopian novel. Like they never go out of style because lots of these things just keep persisting. And so like Your Handmaid's Tale example, I think, is such a great one because maybe it seems so crazy in the 80s that we didn't live through the Reagan era or that kind of infringing on our reproductive rights. But with the Trump era, like, it makes a lot of sense that you'd be worried about that. I totally agree. I also think, I don't know if you ever felt this way. You didn't read the same novels I did, so I don't know if this matters to you as much, but I've always felt the ideas of other worlds be really interesting and one thing i really hated when i was younger about dystopian novels is that we didn't get to see how the society functioned longer like i almost wish there was a book that was just like about a character facing some problem in society because i found like the intricacies of that society in the hierarchical systems like i yeah well i actually think there is a lineage of older dystopian novels um like foundations for example where there's like multiple novels Mm. that describe this world in much more detail um and i I don't necessarily know if that's a trend of newer dystopian novels but yeah i feel like i just kind of want to what that one website said picturing yourself in the society and like what decisions do you make i think that's something that always really appealed to me and so it always made me sad in the books when i didn't get that aspect of it anymore like when katniss goes to war and i'm like but i want to see how the like what's going on in district 11 like what are the farmers doing in this time and I guess let's maybe go into history. Before 1900, there's only really one book that could possibly be considered a dystopian novel. I I feel like it's important to mention there is taken into consideration like the difference between like a dystopian novel and a in a post-apocalyptic novel. So that's not being considered the same thing. I know the concept of the utopia is actually much older. Thomas More wrote Utopia in 1516. And so the more modern dystopian novel starts to kind of make its way into the public sphere around the turn of the 20th century. So as we know, like World War One is beginning. There's a lot of political unrest, global anxiety. Within a few decades, we have World War Two, And so we're seeing this dystopian fiction kind of become a more defined genre. And that really starts with, I'm going to totally butcher his name. Do you know how to say it? Yevgeny Zemetin. He has a book called We, which is much easier to say. Um, But that comes out in 1921. And this book is really important, even though I haven't read it, but now I'm going to. I found this out in my research. That book heavily influences 1984 and Brave New World. That's like the original kind of dystopian novel. And so this book book ends up giving us a lot of the tropes that we tend to see in dystopian fiction. So unresolved endings, like a totalitarian government gone mad, that's going to influence what we see in Orwell's 1984 and Huxley's Brave New World. 
So hmm. in these early books, we're going to see themes that all these future books are going to continue to, I don't want to say it, like obsess over, but just really that's the, that's the trend that we see. So like political capital, what does free will mean? And fear of state or unchecked p- government power. So in the 50s and 60s, that's, you know, the World War II has ended, but now we're going into the Cold War. So this is really looking at war and technology as influences for the dystopian novel. So there was a graph at one point, and, you know, basically after each war and during the Cold War, you're seeing these huge spikes, and it kind of goes down a little bit. So seven, the 70s and 90s, the focus now is more on corporation and poisoned bodies mm. is what one of them called it. But, you know, The Handmaid's Tale talking about, like, body autonomy and what if women were basically reduced to sex slaves and concubines. And then also books like The Giver, which also had a recent movie. So that came back. And then we see the turn of the millennium come with this huge rise in the young adult fiction genre. So there are three young adult titles that came before the 2000s that that I think we could mention. And that's because I think a lot of us read these books, but maybe didn't necessarily think of them as a dystopian novel. And they're definitely like a younger child's book. Um, A Wrinkle in Time. Did you read that? It was one of my favorite books when I was younger. And it is a dystopian. When I Once I read this, I was like, oh, it really was. But that came out in 1962. And then there's William Slater's suspense novel called House of Stairs, which I haven't read. But that was another one that they mentioned as being like a notable example. And then The Giver. Have you read The Giver or like seen the movie? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. I you do. Book. I think it's really interesting the idea that like they're like no one's gonna be sad (laughs) like what an interesting concept to decide to write an entire society about yeah i mean it kind of makes sense though i think that it's important like aspect is these time periods and it seems like in the 50s and 60s is also a time where people especially like philosophers and writers were challenging what state power really meant um especially after the holocaust people Mm -hmm. questioned how could a state become so powerful and unchecked like that? And how could ordinary people kind of play into these systems? And I think that's a huge theme that dystopians really try, dystopian novels really try to tease out. Um, Is this like, is this fact that we all kind of play into these systems? And I think the nineties we're seeing other things like rise in medications, um, unchecked kind of mental health issues, uh, Mm -hmm. increased state power into our private aspects of life. Um, and all of these things are kind of unaddressed. I think there's a really interesting part. My mom brings it up all the time. My mom's obsessed with The Handmaid's Tale. She loves the book and the series. But there's a foreword, I think, in The Handmaid's Tale that talks about, like, watching everything kind of start to crumble around you. But, like, being – what's the word I want? Um, like, kind of refusing to believe that it'll get to that point. And I think that has a parallel to what is the book written by – It's Another one of those books they have you read in school, but it's about a, it's about a Holocaust survivor. Do you know what I'm talking about? But remember, in that book as well, there's a part where he's talking about how there was, I don't remember if it was like the town like jokester or something like that, but he comes back to the town after being gone for a while and he's like, everyone needs to leave. Like they're coming and they're rounding people up and they're like taking them from their homes and they're bringing them to these camps and no one believes him. 
they're like, that's ridiculous. There's no way that could happen. And he's like looking back on it thinking like, what if we had believed him? Like, what if we had left then as opposed to staying and just like writing it off? And I think watching The Handmaid's Tale, that's also something that you kind of start to, in hindsight 2020, right? Like you're watching The Handmaid's Tale, so you know where it's going. But like when they start shutting down the women's bank accounts and all of a sudden the men have to agree to their birth control or whatever it is. It's these like little things that they're like, whatever. It's like slowly crumbling. It's just this one thing, but it keeps building until it finally gets there. And so, but I think at least all of us now, unless we have some really young listeners that I'm unaware of, we were all alive for the Hunger Games series, which I think we can't underestimate the role that that played, not only in like reviving older dystopian novels, but really bringing Hollywood's attention to the dystopian novel and continuing to make movies. Like we see the Maze Runner series, we see the Divergent series, they make The Giver, they make, I mean, there's just movie after movie after movie, and now even more books being written following the success of The Hunger Games. And so there are, okay, there's a couple sources that have talked about like why this resurgence happened. One talked about how it's a result from 9-11 contributing to anxiety surrounding government and politics like that really created this like American anxiety about what happens with unchecked government. So we're seeing that come down through novels and books, novels and books. Okay, same thing. And then why they're so popular with young adults specifically, some say that it's because books are set in this like chaotic or strictly controlled society and that mirrors the teenage life whether it's like at school or at home or with their peers. So it becomes like their own private dystopia. That's what one of the websites called it. But another source was just like, that's ridiculous. It's just because it's exciting. Like the story is the first thing and everything else about it like comes second. It's just like an exciting read. And then the same person said the dystopian fiction genre is actually more like the mythological hero's journey. When you see the parallels and i didn't write down the entire parallel because like it went on for a while there were a lot of them but essentially that there's something that disrupts their life and now they have to go on essentially this quest to bring down the government you know katniss has to go into the hunger games eventually brings down the government like it is really interesting that i never thought of it as being kind of that hero's journey one thing that i kind of wanted to talk about one of the things i was reading quoted an av club essay And it specifically is referring to The Giver, but it's comparing it to the modern day dystopian novel. So there's a little bit of like quote before this. It said, now merely escaping isn't enough. Dystopian thriller protagonists must learn brutally militaristic tactics and enact violence that brings tyranny crumbling down in increasingly bloody action sequences. Now there is the offer that the world can be fixed. So that's kind of what we were already talking about, but I did think it was really interesting. I forgot about that little quote. Because they do become so much more militaristic recently and so much more violent. I mean, there was obviously violence in Brave New World and some other older dystopian novels, but I don't think it's on the same level. But I do think it's interesting that these like young children have to learn these violent tactics in order. It's not like they already know them. They weren't brought up in a society where they were taught them or something. Like They're at risk and they must learn. And what does that mean for society that not only are adults writing that these like young kids have to learn these tactics, but kids are obviously enjoying reading them and watching them. 
Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And I think it's also interesting that we don't find these books to be more threatening. I think that often when we're thinking about social change, like the alarm bells go up immediately when we start uh, suggesting that violence or violence towards the state or violence towards powerful people is a way to make social change. Like it's normally a very scary statement and something that you like get backlash from like many types of yeah. people. Um, so I think it's interesting that that's something that we kind of implicitly endorse in these novels. I don't know. I think that's kind of also what I was thinking about. Like it's just interesting that we just like kind of blindly accept that there's this really violent upheaval. What's the not overthrow? That's not a word. I feel like this upheaval, I don't know. I don't know the word I'm trying to think of, but it's just like expected now. I mean, now I feel like so many books are just written for the movie if they're well done. And so it's almost written envisioning the dramatic violence scene that we're going to see, which to me has never been the most exciting part of watching a TV show. Like in Game of Thrones, I don't know if you remember when we watched it together, I didn't like the bloody gore scenes or like the um, episodes that were totally focused on like a battle. I much more liked the character development and what was going on behind the scenes, like the manipulation tactics, like that's what I found interesting. And so I think it's really sad that some books are being written for like the violent, like the big battle scene or like the epic showdown, whatever's going to go down instead of focusing on like that character growth, which I feel like before TV and movies were around, there was no reason to worry about that but before they were around. Obviously, they were like around when these books were being written, but not to the same degree. Yeah, I don't know. I think that it's definitely more stylized for sure. But I definitely think a lot of older dystopian novels are pretty violent and had pretty violent resolutions. Um, what comes to mind is Fahrenheit 451 when they're burning things down and restarting. And the I won't spoil the end, but the end is extremely violent um, to lead into this kind of new Yeah, world. I just meant more that like, those books had really great character mm. development and growth no, and like yes. dialogue going on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I don't know. People can disagree with me. I just, I know how I feel like. Obviously, books are, or movies are never as good as the books. Okay, I thought we could talk about some of our favorites. So, what are your, what are some of your favorites? It can be books, movies, whatever. Um, well, definitely gonna have to go with books here. Um, and I'd have to say that I think one of, my favorite books of all time also happens to be a dystopian novel, um, and it's Stranger in a Strange Land, which it's like a 1950s dystopian novel about this guy who's a Martian, um, and he classic Martian. <laughs> he basically tries to save the world in a variety of ways, and he's so much of an outsider because he's a Martian. Um, he doesn't understand what it's like to be human, uh, doesn't understand customs, and he's so confused by everyone around him, and I think he kind of uses that outsiderness as a way to make people feel more whole and make people be less violent and all these other things and the book ends kind of tragically and i won't spoil that but it doesn't end okay in... don't show it <laughs> oh <laughs> no is he murdered no comment oh. so yeah definitely one of my favorites and i'd say a close second is probably fahrenheit 451 brave new world um classics and also pretty quick quick reads so i'd recommend those ones for sure it is a classic one Okay, well-known ones that I haven't read or, like, haven't watched, but I've heard are really good. I never read Animal Farm. That wasn't on, like, my syllabus in what? grade school. Oh, Soylent Green. 
That's one I've always wanted to see because I had a friend who started telling me about Do you know Soylent Green? Oh, it's like, I can't ruin it for you. Darn, I'm glad I didn't, I asked if you had seen it because I was going to do the really famous quote from it. But it's essentially like, from what I remember, this kid basically quoted it to me and I was like, what the heck are you talking about? This is in like seventh or eighth grade. And he was like, you haven't seen Soylent Green? <laughs> I was like, no, I have no idea what you're referencing. And so he explained the premise to me and I was like, that's weird. But it's like, there's no farmable land anymore. So, like, there's not enough food. Everyone's starving. So they have to, like, manufacture what they can. And this one company has manufactured Soylent Green. And I don't know, like, if it's a journalist or how this guy figures out that, like, something is up with Soylent Green. But he starts, like, investigating it. It's, like, an older movie. Maybe we should watch that because I've always wanted to. But I know how it ends. So, like, I've never been like that. You know what I mean? But, okay, if you could be anyone in the brave new world society like in any of the classes where would you which one would you choose to be in i think i know your answer Ooh, it's such a good one um hmm. i think you're the people on the island <laughs> yeah we're on the same page there i also think so i actually just don't want to be a part of this please send me that island to read books and like not be here <laughs> yeah that sounds actually extremely accurate <laughs> okay but yeah, you're 100% the people on the island. You can be an alpha. But I see you being like kicked out of society because you like read a book. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to our next question asked by me. Okay, I'm excited about this question because I feel like in our recent editing, we mentioned the defund the police movement so much and tied it into so many things, which is good. So what does defunding the police really mean? How and when did the movement start? What would it look like? And then this is a subjective question, but do you think the term is too divisive? Does it give ammunition to conservatives or people who don't necessarily agree with it? Or is it too strong that if you don't understand what it means, you're going to be like, defund the police. Why would we ever do that? Does it, is there a block? Is there a barrier to entry with the term, if that makes sense? Okay, so I am super excited for this question, and um, I would probably say that Defund the Police is probably one of my favorite social movements that has become popular in the last 10 years. Have you known about it for 10 years? Um, No. Well, I would have been like 10, but <laughs> uh, I more mean that I, this is a movement that's been kind of um, grassroots in a lot of different marginalized communities, um, but essentially, I, I want to just be super basic with definitions here. But the idea is divesting from police departments and reallocating that money towards marginalized communities and towards the types of problem solving and de-escalation that actually helps communities. And that idea of reallocation and restructuring policing is something very old and very much a part of most social movements. Um, okay, so... Um, First, before I go into reallocating what that looks like, I really want to contextualize what we're talking about here. So this is how much money is going into police departments, for example. So in 2020, the U.S. collectively spent $115 billion, with a B, on policing. I'm sorry, that's <laughs> just like an insane amount of money. And... <laughs> 
no, no, no. It was just so funny. With B. It's not billion. <laughs> it's billion. No, no, no. I appreciate the the clarification. I just didn't expect it. It was in a good way. <laughs> okay, fair. And in LA, the LAPD budget is about 18% of a city's budget. So 1.6 billion out of 10.5 and 54% of the city's general funds. And this is a figure that looks similar in many cities. We have see similar statistics in Chicago and Boston, for example. And again, this just goes to show how much money is going into police departments. And this comes directly at the expense of every other public good and so we talked about the public education episode that there is a divestment into public schooling and no one seems to care about that issue but the moment we start talking about defunding the police that is where the alarm bells go up so yes there's a sexy slogan for defund the police (laughs) i'm so sorry (laughs) I was just so pleasantly surprised by that. <laughs> yeah, we have a yeah, we have a sexy slogan. <laughs> it's not up for debate. <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> I love it. Um so some so I kind of want to get into some of the origins of this. Um Besides, like, the increasing amount of money that's being spent on police departments, there's this large lineage of people realizing that there's also large amounts of police brutality and over-policing of certain communities. So we're kind of seeing multiple trends happening here. Um, And there's multiple ways to kind of look at this police form, and I think that we've all kind of collapsed all of it into one slogan of defund the police, but all these movements look very different, and the advocates behind these movements look different. But I think it's super important to think about why are people so scared of this phrase? And on the other side of that coin, why is this phrase so important for the people that are using it? The people who are using it want you to be shaken by the phrase. They want you to realize that they're asking for more than small reform change. They're asking for something. They're looking for something systematic looking for something that won't just keep the status quo and so i think yes that phrase is jarring but that jarringness is important to the movement not necessarily a question but i feel like this is just from my own experience with the phrase not hearing it before 2020 summer and when i first read it exactly what you said i was like defund the police that seems like really extreme And had I not been someone who was willing to, like, read more about it, you know what I'm saying? I feel like the people who I went to high school with hear that statement and they're like, freaking liberals, they want to defund the police. Like, they have no idea. You know, does – if that statement doesn't actually encourage people to look into it further – I feel like the people who would look into it further are already going to be willing to look into it. Do you know what I'm – do you understand the question I'm trying to ask? Yeah, I, I definitely hear you. I think kind of two things that that makes me think of. And the first is, one, I, I think people get so upset and so scared of an existence without police that they haven't really taken the time to think about what does the existence of police look like to people of color? How are they scared every day by these people that are quote unquote supposed to protect them? but often are brutalizing their communities and their loved ones. And second, 
I think I just want to be super careful in this episode to not delegitimize people's experiences and reason for using this specific type of language. I don't think they're asking for piecemeal change. They want systematic change. And while not everyone in under the defunded police movement thinks the same, there are specific people who want to dismantle the entire system. And I think it's legitimate for them to use that phrase. Okay, maybe I'm phrasing this wrong. Because I totally understand, like, the phrase defund the police now. It was like the first second I heard it, I was like, what about robbers or like murderers right like that was my first thought and then within 10 seconds of like reading it i was like oh this is a really smart plan and i understand now why this phrase makes sense but i guess if you maybe it comes from this sense of like say there's someone who's like listening to this episode right now right that hasn't taken any time to learn what defund the police is about they're just against it because they think they hear it and they don't want to learn anything more about it. Because I feel like if you went up to a general person on the street and you're like, yeah, we want to reallocate funds in the system and we want to spend more money on education and to rehabilitation and to decriminalization, you know, all the different things that are going to be happening, social security or housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, people would be for that. Mm, not so sure. <laughs> you don't? No, I think that I mean, I think we've even seen it after George Floyd that everyone was out in the streets and advocating for these bills that would drastically reduce the amount of funds that went into police funds. And all of those bills have died. Those bills have not been carried on. Um, the social movements have led in no systemic change in both funding or structuring of police departments. So, sure, people cared a lot in the moment, but they've used none of these piecemeal approaches to continue doing piecemeal change and i think this frustration is the pain that people feel when saying defund the police and then the pain that people have when that uh, when their Mm. movement keeps getting delegitimized in some way because it's too radical or it's too scary for people to comprehend yeah i guess whenever i'm when i hear things i'm trying to think of like how i would convince someone who was, like, against it to support it. Yeah, no, I I totally get that. Uh, I think that, well, one, it's not a monolith of what people mean by that statement. Um, But I think that people who are using it in the more, quote-unquote, radical way want more acknowledgement that police are harmful and harmful to their communities. Um, And I think... But So I guess, sorry, I'm not trying to interrupt you even though I know I am, I just, how to, how to get people to that point. You know what I'm saying? How do you get them? Like, I feel like anyone who starts listening to you talk about with whatever you're going to say would be swayed. But I feel like part of the issue is there's already this just like divide in America that like, if I'm a conservative, I have to believe this and I'm a liberal. So I support these things. And how, how do you get people who hear the name and are pushed off by it to start having those conversations. Yeah, And uh, I think this might kind of sound harsh, but I think that if we're not willing to actually address or confront our police systems and who we call criminal and who we don't, who we're policing and who we don't, then we're never actually going to be equipped to make this change. And I think that we'll never actually be at a place 
to pass the extreme bills, excuse me, to pass the bills that are extreme enough to fix these problems. And this is ranging from both federal to local government. So I think, yeah, I I think that sure, this phrase is a lot to some people, but if they're not willing to go past that step of recognizing that there's a problem, then I don't think we're ever going to get anywhere. And that level of uncomfortableness is something that everyone has to confront if there's going to be systemic change. Yeah, so I think there's kind of two ways that I'm imagining this. And the first is I want to point out how (laughs) bad police systems are, um, or really are. And I kind of want to talk about the plan, what the plan looks like, um, and maybe add some more details to make it less scary. And, uh, and I also, um, okay, soapbox moment for a second. I think one, if you find this name so off-putting, you're probably not going to be in these spaces, um, (laughs) that are asking for police abolition and, and refunding. And I think secondly, um, uh, and I know it's harsh, uh, but secondly, abolition is abolition. And sure, that's a scary term for a lot of people. But for me personally, and I think for a lot of others, it's a liberating phrase um, and an empowering phrase because it's a political slogan. And that's the whole point of them. People use specific words for specific reasons. And I don't think whitewashing it is where this movement should start. And I, and I appreciate the language that they're using. I think also, I think it's especially important for this example in the social movement, I think it's important to recognize that this movement is built from personal experiences and lived experiences of people who have experienced immense trauma from the police and from police, sorry, excuse me, state misconduct and disinvestment. And by invalidating the name it's almost like you're invalidating those experiences that people have had no yeah i think just because um of where i live like hearing a lot of the commentary i'm constantly trying to think of like how to have a better argument how to justify things and i'm constantly like in in williams right it was easy for me to have this conversation with people because no one was really wholeheartedly against the idea or against at least the basis of which the ideas are based on does that make sense like people in general exactly in our liberal like purple bubble could agree like black people are treated unfairly by the police Mm -hmm. and i think in the south at least where i am people fundamentally don't necessarily believe that so in having this conversation with you part of it was like I mean, maybe there's just no way to change their mind at all, like, to get past that idea. Like, Jacksonville's Mm -hmm. a military town, so there's a lot of, like, police and military support here. And so I think that was also part of my rationale for the the question. I don't want anyone to think that I'm questioning the merits of the idea itself or, like, what's behind – I'm trying to figure out the way I want to say it. But do do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not – any of the facts that have led to – no, yeah, it totally makes sense. For sure. No, I, I totally I understood what you were doing. You were trying to more tease out ways that we can get people who were already kind of disengaged with this idea of defund the police to really buy into it. And my critique of, or not critique, but my 
intentness on being specific about validating people who are using this phrase is more kind of just to signal that yes you are heard and you are valid and it's needed and you're right um and i just think that's important to acknowledge and on the show and also just generally so when people talk about how do you tackle place. it without support because i guess that's the way i was thinking about it like we have to convince we have to get the support to get the votes to get it to be implemented yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think and i hear you and i think I guess more of my own personal frustration is I feel like we spend so much time trying to get white Protestants or white people on board with these things. And even liberals, they pretend like they believe in these principles. But even Nancy Pelosi does not support defund the police. Joe Biden does not support defund the police. And they can't even acknowledge their own part that they've played in these harmful policing systems. Um, Joe Biden played or used being tough on crime as a way to gain political power and now he doesn't want to kind of admit his role in that and i think that's is harmful um and, and in many ways i think that we all don't kind of acknowledge our role in exploitative systems so i think what i'm trying to say is that instead of trying to convince people of small things like we should reallocate money i think it's important to say why are police bad why is this concept of police bad? Why was the war on crime a bad concept? And how are these structures rotten from the core? And is it worth spending so much time fixing something that seems so broken from the beginning? So uh, another way of saying this is why not spend the energy just starting something new? Like if America's uh, model for justice is not working and... <laughs> Uh, other countries have figured out better systems of justice let's let's put the energy in making those and building those systems no thanks for clarifying i think i misunderstood the goal and so because of that i'm yeah yeah and i think um what i really appreciate uh, really appreciate about you kind of pushing me to be more specific about what i'm advocating for here is that yes this this name is scary and sure, like I'm, I am definitely advocating for a more radical reimagining of what this movement is and could be. But I think it's important to represent this side of the argument because I think that on some level you need to accept the same premises to support a, even a more modest form of this defund the police movement. Um, and again, you can disagree with this. Um, I very much have a bias towards large systemic change. Um, and you could agree that, or sorry, you could disagree and say that more radical change doesn't make sense and that piecemeal change from within the system is the best thing. But no matter which way you're looking at this, I think as long as you agree with the principles that I've laid out, that I think these people can be somewhat on a similar page. Um and so you don't have to be all or nothing about social change like I am. But I do think in whatever belief that you have, make sure you're just acknowledging that the experiences people are telling you are real. Um, and so I kind of want to get into more specifics because I think that might be more helpful when thinking about um, what does defund police actually look like. Okay, so basically the first one is that since the 1960s, as I mentioned in the first part of the episode, that there has been more and more spending on police systems 
um, on law enforcement, on prisons. Um, and this kind of stems from the war on drugs, uh, the war on crime and legislation that we see basically from every president f- from the last few decades. And uh, the other premise is that police aren't actually effective for achieving their goal, which would be safety. And they're failing on this metric of safety in a few ways. The first is that the number of people in prison is not matching kind of the levels of decreasing crime throughout the years. We've increased people in prison by like a hundred percent, right? So that should mean that there should be some significant reduction in crime. And I don't think we're seeing that. Uh, We're also seeing increasing evidence of police misconduct and police force against people of color, against sex workers, against trans people. They're actively hurting communities and communities that have already faced years of disinvestment and state violence. Um, If we look at the disproportionate rates of police force used, the increased rates of sexual assault among different communities like sex workers. And this is where I'm saying that the movement has been around forever because these communities have acknowledged this increased level of hurt and these bad interactions with the police and have been calling for different forms of reform and abolition for a very long time, even before it was called defund the police. Um, And another important piece of this is I think I'd like to kind of be specific about what do different people that believe in defund the police actually mean. Um, And I think they all would agree that it means some form of divestment. So this is similar to different divest movements in terms of fossil fuels. It's the same kind of language if you've heard that before. And I think there is kind of something to be said that this this um, collapsing of language and social movements is definitely real. I think we've seen increased movements using language like divest and abolition. And I think that um, there's a, a explicit connection to police abolition, to sustainability, to climate change support, and that reallocation of towards or excuse me away from police departments intrinsically helps all these other social movements um and i think that's something very interesting and unique about defund the police is kind of um this ability to kind of connect a lot of different activism um and so essentially um i don't want to define divestment as well and it does not necessarily mean you take all the money from a police department and reallocate it right i think there's different ranges on what people believe is the right allocation of money um but again i think they would all agree that it should go into more social services like mental health support um social workers to de-escalate situations um uh, different uh, resources for people that are experiencing domestic abuse, things like that. P- uh, and as an acknowledgement that police are not these stewards that can solve all these issues. They are not trained to do so. Um, they're often not trained in bias training in a real meaningful way. And they are given arbitrary power and a weapon over other people. And that's not the support that communities need. Um, And so I think you kind of see this on a smaller scale on college campuses, right? Like they're calling for campus security to be de-armed and they're asking for more mental health support, more poverty relieving things on campus, mental health hotlines, etc. These structures already exist in small places and students and people are advocating for these things already. It's not that large of a jump to ask for them in, in places where people go after college. 
can I ask a question? And you may not know the answer to this question, which is totally fine. So I know you said modern police, like the similarity in the 1800s were, and just because obviously civilization was much, has gone on for, you know, however many years before the 1800s, at least 18, like even just like England in the 1600s, were there no form of police? Like, is it that that relatively new, this idea? Or was it like military stood in? It, and if you don't know, it's totally fine. I was just wondering. Okay, so I'm actually super excited that you asked me this question. Um, because I think that it's really important to know where police started and where they came from. And so the first form of police in the United States were slave patrols. Um, they were men essentially hired by slave masters to police plantations to hunt runaway slaves and to tame slave revolts. And so that essentially meant con- um, committing violence towards slaves to keep them in line, listening to their conversations, reporting back to their masters what they were saying. Um, and I think it's this like level of violence towards black people and this racialized sense of policing has been around since the inception of police. And then you see more laws codifying this level of policing afterwards. We see vagrancy laws um, that are created essentially to arrest black people again and, and, and find ways to exploit their labor like a vagrancy law that you'd be arrested for not having a job or just walking around and then put into a cage where you would just be picking cotton for free and then today i think we see something super similar with mass incarceration where disproportionate levels of black people are being arrested for arbitrary crimes and then forced to do prison labor for 10 cents an hour but yeah, if you're kind of interested in this um, pipeline of, um, not really, excuse me, not pipeline, um, in this cycle of kind of slavery type practices and violence towards black people with the usage of prisons and policing, um, I'd recommend either watching the documentary 13 or reading uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Um, but yeah, to answer more of your question specifically, I think that while going back to 1600s England, right, that's the disproportionate number of, like, white people, right, uh, I would like to expand this definition to more poor people, and I think the United States that there's a disproportionate amount of black people who are poor, um, but we see this kind of policing that crosses class lines as well. In the 1600s, um, police were often policing low-income communities in England, um, policing what they could do, criminalizing their poverty. Um, and this type of vagrancy laws and this type of policing has existed in many different forms throughout the almost entire existence of history, generally. Um, so yeah, super great question. Um, and I, I think, to be specific, I, I really just mean that this sense of organized police patrols um, in this racialized way is a very unique design in, of the United States um, and more kind of where I know. Thank you. Okay. That was, I'm very clarifying. I understand now what you're saying. Well, I always understood what you were saying, but I was like, did the police not really <laughs> exist before 1800? If only. <laughs> no, what I was thinking, I was like, I feel like so- there had to be something. <laughs> like, did, was there just no like? Because obviously there were laws, you know, prior to eighteen hundred. Like, 
So were those just like not in, was it just the military was the police? That's why I just wanted to clarify because I just mm-hmm. didn't know how how that di- how much it differed prior to that. Perfect. Thank you. Um another question that may or may not be answerable, but it just really stuck with me the way you were saying throw in jail to reform them. I mean, obviously the way we know jail today does not is not conducive to reform also like reform what reform being poor like you know what i mean it's not like a rehab like what are you reforming in that are you sending people to therapy for you know being violent it just has has jail always looked like that because i feel like if we're going to use the word or not you specifically but like if if governments are going to say that they're going to send people to jail to be reformed air quotes i feel like there would inherently be some investment in mental health, in retraining, in education, in these things that, like, obviously you and I have talked about, but none of those are there. It's like, hey, make license plate and, like, do work. So, yeah, and I think that particular example that you brought up of making license plate, like, prison labor is essentially slave labor. People are paid, like, 13 between like two and 13 cents an hour to do actual jobs and companies like nike are hiring them and i mean i'm sure you even remember during covid they were being enlisted to fight Mm -hmm. fires oh yeah oh yeah Yeah. no i do sorry and the high it was the highest paying prison job for like 50 cents an hour for people who aren't trained to um fight fires risking their lives to do so and so i think it's things like this where we're just recycling these toxic systems of slavery and exploitation over and over again just repackaging them we're just (laughs) rebranding let's rebrand slavery wouldn't that be quirky of us if we just made people make license plates and pay them two cents instead of nothing and so i think things like this is where activists who are in this space all the time or grew up with family and neighbors that have been in prison um all know that this is a very real thing and I think for them that the skepticism surrounding this issue issue is just extremely personally upsetting. And I would like to say for me, um, as someone who's been pretty lucky not to know that many people who have been in and out of prison, um, but for some it's an everyday occurrence and it's personally upsetting when that thing is not taken seriously, when the impact of an incarcerated family member or friend is not taken seriously. And I think from the other side that I think we, in a lot of ways, have turned against each other because we have fallen Mm -hmm. into this trap of not realizing that crime is systematic. It has to do with the environments that we grew up in. It has to do with the lack of resources that we just didn't get, the lead that we may have been exposed to that's making us more violent, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that black people are more likely to be criminal or that poor people are more likely to be criminal, but the fact that we created laws that force them to be in prison and then we don't give them any support when they get out of prison. We don't reform them in any way. We, in fact, harm them. Um, and I think I encourage you, you as the, like the you out there, I encourage you to listen to the language that's being used to describe poor and brown people. Yeah. Listen to the biases present in that language. 
Why are we calling some people welfare queens? Why are we describing some people as crackheads or violent or worthy of imprisonment and others not? And more importantly, listen to people's experiences. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just absorbing all of what you were saying because even though, you know, I've heard – when I say versions, I don't mean like variations on what you're saying. But like, you know, you and I have talked before or watching the news or watching documentaries, reading a book – I still think every time it still, like, hits mm. me how, like, cruel and evil people yeah. can be in and find a way to justify it, I think, is, like, what's even. Yeah, and I think that's so right. And I think that these conversations of uh, creating terms like um, the welfare queen, the crackhead, the southern strategy right like these things happened in a room with just a bunch of rich white guys with political power thinking how can we win elections how can we turn working class people against each other um and these conversations are real there's documented evidence of them happening and it's so jarring um the fact that this is we're literally talking about people like joe biden who was endorsing anti-drug policies who's endorsing things like not busing people or desegregation policies these people are still around they still exist and they still perpetuate these horrible policies um and even people like people who are venerated in the democratic party like bill clinton right he is the primary person who is responsible for the major uptick in mass incarceration. Three Structure Out is created by Bill Clinton and kind of reinforced this idea that both parties needed to be tough on crime if they were going to survive the next term. I'd love to touch on in the future, but just like, I, I know we talked about public school, but I think it would be interesting to talk about like high school and elementary education, especially as it comes in to race. And, like, what's taught about this? Because I just feel like all of this is stuff that I should have known so much longer. Like, the origin of the police and not having it be, like, the police or, or community service. They're New York's finest or whatever. I don't remember which one they are. But um, I think it's just – I just feel like – <laughs> like I was um, – what's it? Like the wool over my eyes. <laughs> Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Um, so thinking about kind of how to wrap up the conversation, I think that something I really want to stress is that this that experience is sometimes enough and it, it is just as powerful sometimes and guides academic or legitimate quote-unquote knowledge. And I think... I I am half black and half white and uh and I think I can speak for perhaps some black people to say that their um opinion about this issue is very much informed by personal experience and I think many people that are people of color generally have uh fucked the police sentiments because of horrible experiences that they've had with the police um and I would like to say that that experiential knowledge is just as important as the academic knowledge. And and I think, honestly, sometimes I think it's difficult to turn this experiential knowledge into something that is considered legitimate. Um, 
because so much of our understanding of the police is guided by these harmful and traumatic experiences. I think, um, like, for example, I think if you say the talk, every black household knows exactly what you're talking about, that if you're a young black man, like your parents taught you how you needed to interact with the police to make sure that you aren't shot or hurt or frisked by the police. Um, And it's a conversation that everyone knows or every black family knows. It's something that's instantly triggers memories and of pain. Um, and I offhandedly mentioned that to people and <laughs> they're like, what? You're like taught not to trust the police or to be skeptical of the police. And yes, <laughs> our understandings and experiences with people who are considered powerful shape our understandings of these systems. And I think that like that's privilege, right? And I think that it's worth pointing out that sure, you may have not had that experience with the police, but if you're so unwilling to recognize that others may have had harmful and painful experiences with the system, and that should just be enough to say like, hey, this isn't working. And in fact, it's not working, but it's actively harmful to communities. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have to think of a better way to just be like i love what you just said because i just haven't heard it explained or i haven't heard those words put towards the problem but i love the idea of experiential versus like the academic or like statistical side of it because i do think that's where this like huge divide comes in where it's like all of a sudden white people are like the police are problematic what but i've i've aren't we all nervous when we get pulled over for a ticket (laughs) like (laughs) right like (laughs) in i mean because i i mean i'd probably i actually haven't gotten pulled over i'm i'm because i'm terrified i'm of all authority (laughs) i'm just getting in trouble like the idea of it makes me over here literally (laughs) but so um I just think that's such a nice way to explain it. Like, there's this obvious experiential component that, like, I don't know the statistics. Just, like, people haven't experienced. And so they just don't think that it exists until it's all of a sudden brought up. And then they're like, all these statistics exist. And I say they don't think it exists. But, like, you know, that's why I think... The videos of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and, like, all Breonna Taylor, all of them happening so close together, all coming to the surface. There was so much video evidence all of a sudden. Like, there was no way to, like, pretend. (laughs) Oh, we all get a little nervous. (laughs) But, yeah, no, I just wanted to thank you for saying it that way because I was just like, wow, that was really good. Yeah, and I think this experiential part is also something that makes kind of this issue very different than other kind of reform social justice movement etc things like i think like this abstract problem of like how do i fix capitalism or how do i fix climate change like i think this might change with climate change in the next 10 years but there's actual tangible experiences of harm that we can point to here and i don't think necessarily those other two issues have tangible direct results i mean i think yes there's products of them but it's much harder to point to that um specific thing and i think that there's also a tangible impact that you can have on this issue 
Um, and to end with something super positive, I think that there's like two super basic things you can do. One, acknowledging people's experiences, not questioning what they're saying, listening to what they're saying. Don't say stupid things like, we're all scared of getting pulled over or all police aren't bad, right? Like that's not helpful and no one needs you minimizing their experiences. And secondly, a lot of this reform can happen at the local level, at the grassroots level. These bills to um, defund or reallocate resources happen often by a city-by-city level. You can get involved in your city planning boards, run for office, (laughs) support bills. Yeah. Okie dokie. Thank you, Essence. Honestly, that was like super well researched. I feel like I learned so, so much and feel even more passionately about it than I did before. And it was really awesome to see you be so excited about it. And thanks for teaching us all. You're like, please stop. (laughs) (laughs) Who, me? (laughs) Compliments. Okay. Well, that is our episode for this week. We hope you guys enjoyed. Our next episode is going to be Big Banks and the Big Short, which I'm really excited for. Remember that we will be releasing our Patreon. Oh my god. A small dog barked outside my door. (laughs) Oh, actually, this is something I wanted to talk about, so it's actually perfect. My dogs came and interrupted my goodbye message. But Essence and I um, have been working on getting Cartoonas placed in our podcast, so hopefully by the time this episode airs it's up but right now it's it's like finishing touches but my dogs are in it because they're almost always in the room when we're recording so I thought it was only fair so hopefully you guys like that but but please share this podcast with your friends comment rate subscribe whatever it is it really helps us get our podcast out there and get more people who aren't already our friends and family to be listening so Thanks for coming to the crew. See you guys next time. <laughs>